Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle that people are making and occasionally ourselves. This is episode 102 recorded on the evening of Friday, May 25th, 2018. Year is just flying by. I'm Camille Foster. I do all kinds of stuff at Freethink. I am running off of about an hour of sleep over the past 48 hours Many, many milligrams of Adderall. <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. It is very dangerous. I make it look easy because I'm exceptional. Um, and in addition to my being exceptional, I'm also joined by exceptional, extraordinary humans. Uh, Michael Moynihan, editor. Uh, no, he's not an editor of mm. anything. He's no. the he's the mishman on the moon. What is the position? Mi- the some sort mish- of title? Mish- I told you I'd been sleeping he, for an hour in the last guy two days. He's the guy who in but all you said, the You just make it easy. I do. You don't make it look easy. Well, you you right. call me a mishman. I'm, I'm melting. What is a mishman? I'm actually what? melting down. I think, it's, I think it's this means guy who stuff. does uh, interviews on Vice with yeah. always like his hair. Yeah, just yeah. Like oh, no, I remember. I remember now. National correspondent for Vice News tonight. Yeah. And on HBO. He yeah. also contributes to Vice on HBO. Yeah. Because he's a man show. of yeah. multiple talents. Yeah. So wonderful to have you here. Thanks. I've been also joined by one Matt Welch. He is the editor at large, one of two editors at large at Reason Magazine. Matt Welch is an accomplished journalist, a phenomenal human being, father of two beautiful young girls. Matt, also wonderful to have you here. Hashtag dad shorts. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> dad shorts and a Darth Vader t-shirt. Is that because really, that's literally no, you're like is, George Costanza. Is, I've never seen someone who's given up look, more than that. Look, look closer. Yeah. It's the dark side of Switzerland. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yep. It's it's really <laughs> it sure is. Wow. Wow. OK, Matt. Um, we, we've also got the, the homie Anthony Fisher. He is uh, on the on the he's doing his voice of God thing outside of the room with his gamer headset. Fisher, it's wonderful to have you here as well. He is a contributor to many remarkable publications and. Are you okay, Fisher? You feeling good? I'm good. It's great to have you here. You have a new affiliation. Yeah, I got a new affiliation. I'm a senior editor at The Week. Well, good for you, Fisher. You had been uh, working at the... the uh, subway uh, up there in Astoria, which was, Quick, I think Quickie was, Mart. Yeah, he was good. Yeah. He made a he made a, a chicken parm. Delicious. <laughs> I, 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 I can toss those wrinkled cold cuts. And for he the best did of them. not get any <laughs> nasty tweets from Ben Dominich uh, when he was up there at the subway. He <laughs> wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't Ben, ben Dominich was not saying that's a really bad turkey sub you made. Ben, me. ben is a faithful listener to this. Ben podcast. is great. I, I like Ben. There was a tweet from his social media account. There was a tweet from the social media account. The Federalist that criticized the column that Anthony wrote. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Anyway. But I also want to introduce our guest for the afternoon. We have a guest. Um, and I've only, Jacob, I met you maybe a couple of weeks ago at the FIRE event for the very first time, although I'd heard your voice on your podcast, which is Jacob. Pronounce your last name for me so I don't fuck it up, because I will. Mshengama. D- what? Do it again? Mshengama. What would you just do there? It's an African you, name. Mmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like that's what he did. That right. is yeah. that is remarkable. And he, I'm not gonna and, try. You know, it's, I'll tell you what, he's a handsome man that. too. It's like it's like listening to Barry White. I mean, I'm Shangama. Yeah. Or yeah. Barry White. Like I wasn't gay when I walked into the room. <laughs> it's like but, listening uh, to Barry Weiss. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, Jacob, it's remarkable to have you here. <laughs> Jacob, Jacob, where's the name from, by the way? 
My father is from a tiny place in the Indian Ocean called the Comoro Islands. Mm. Huh. Yeah. And your father, just before we get to your father is a political figure. Yes, he, uh, he, he used to be in government there. Now he's doing NGO stuff and uh, in and out of jail whenever he pisses off the government too much. Yeah, yeah I seem to remember getting an email one time and I was like, is that Jacob's father? Uh-huh. And it was from the Human Rights Foundation. They were like that he'd been arrested. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. We were having Jacob's a whole father. conversation yeah. about whether Amazing. or not Jacob is black when he's here in America. Yeah. His father has been incarcerated. He's definitely black. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Boom. Oh, my God. <laughs> Boom. Can we Did make it. this a video podcast if you know <laughs> that you're saying that shit and I'm not saying that shit? Good well, God. well, can I, just to finish out the intro, Jacob, you are here, you're here, you're, you're here from Denmark. You are the host of uh, Clear and Present Danger. It is a, a history of free speech, which is a podcast that you're producing for fire. This is a, a limited, a limited engagement, but very good podcast. Could you give folks some context? And Moynihan, you just, you hit me with a vape. And I inhaled it. <laughs> uh, no, you have 400 milligrams of Adderall and you're having no, a heart attack. No, no. It's, it's, <laughs> Sorry. Really, you're gripping your chest. It's not the bit. Could you, could you give us a little bit of context or the listeners anyways, a little bit of context for the podcast, what it is all about um, yeah. and why you embarked on this journey to, to come across the pond to hang out here. I think you're also um, doing some stuff at Columbia at the moment. Yeah, I'm a visiting scholar at, at Columbia, a visiting fellow at uh, at FIRE. So I'm, uh, I was born and raised in, in cozy, liberal Denmark, where nothing much happens. Uh, and I'm very much sort of a, uh, a child of the cartoon affair. A Danish newspaper published uh, cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole world went batshit crazy, or at least parts, pa- certain parts of the yeah. world. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and I was living in a country where, you know, there'd been a long established tradition of writers, uh, cartoonists being able to, you know, poke fun at Christianity and religion uh, in general. And then suddenly, you know, I see while Danish flags are burning, uh, I suddenly see the uh, cultural elite and lots of politicians saying, you know, yeah, well, free speech is important, but, uh, you know, we shouldn't That's offend. Uh, All great statements start that way. Yeah. Free speech yeah. is important, but and 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 a lot of people who actually. Salman Rushdie calls them the butt brigade. Yeah, exactly. honestly, it's like that when they say free speech is great, but don't trust those people. It's yeah. a little homophobic, and I'll allow it. <laughs> oh God, Can I'm just know? saying. God. Is that is that wrong, Matt? <laughs> the look. Keep going. Jeez, Matt. Yeah, but, but these these were people who who made a living. You know, their whole livelihood depended on them being able to to enjoy free speech. And suddenly they were, you know, uh, they were, uh, you know, saying Yulon's person is, you know, as bad as the Islamists. You know, they were extremists on both sides when they had just run, <laughs> car- you know, cartoons. And there were people with AK-47s yeah. uh, uh, trying to, to respond to, to cartoons. And then so and to be clear, Yulon's person is the, the paper that published. Them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and. Uh, so I spend I've spent more than a decade, uh, you know, involved in free speech debates. And then in the past, you know, so during the cartoon affair, it was mostly the center right in Denmark that were sort of was free speech is uh, absolute. You know, we can't compromise on, on on free speech. It doesn't matter whether you're a minority or a majority. You know, uh, and and I was very much on board with that. But then. 
uh, in the past couple of years, uh, we've had a center-right government in Denmark that has passed more laws restricting free speech than at any other time since the Second World War. Hmm. And and all those laws are basically aimed at Muslims, uh, b- Muslims who engage in sort of extreme uh, speech. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly all of those <laughs> on the center-right who had been free speech is absolute during the cartoon crisis turned around and basically say th- said made this exact same arguments that the left had made with the cartoons only this time when it came to yeah when, you know free speech is important but you know you, you can't have people uh, defending sharia law or you know mm-hmm. you can't have imams uh, saying uh, this or this or that and and then you know uh, to me it was just uh, depressing and i i found that Discussions over free speech in Denmark, but also here in the States very much, uh, basically across the board, were so, you know, captivated by tribalism and uh, very few arguments uh, were had had much substance, including my own. I mean, I also, a lot of what I wrote was sort of very sort of abstract uh, mm-hmm. things. And, and I thought, okay, if free speech is important, why not delve into the history? Why is it important? Is it important? Where does it come from? Um, you know, what have the red lines been throughout the ages? What can we learn from the past, uh, if anything? So I, uh, yeah, so I decided to uh, stop in, go all the way back to ancient Athens as the first ep- episode. And right now I've worked my way into the Middle Ages. And wow. uh, at some point I'll end up with artificial intelligence. I don't <laughs> Ambling know through history. Yeah. Jacob, a question about, I think one of the things that shocked everybody about the cartoon affair in 2005, 2006, uh, was that, was where it came from, right? I mean, most of us thought of Denmark as this very kind of placid, liberal, social democratic place that, you know, when I lived in Sweden, at the time I lived in Sweden, you would migrate south to Denmark and things would get more liberal. You had Christiania, (laughs) the place where you could buy hash in an open market. And it said there was a big sign that said now leaving the European Union and you're going to Christiania, you could buy drugs and everything. And then all of a sudden, this place that was very, very liberal, very social democratic, very open to ideas of all different types, had a kind of left wing tradition. One would presume that a left wing tradition would probably butt up against religious extremism in some 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 sense. So in 2005, just to give some people some background, I want to ask you this: uh, a guy named Carl Blutningham that says, "I want to draw some pictures." In a children's book of the Prophet Muhammad, tries to find some people to do so. They're clever enough to say no because they understand that this is probably um, putting a target on their back. What happened next, and how did you get involved in this? I mean. We never expected. I mean, this was a, a kind of a pause between when when Jelandsposten and Fleming Rose published those cartoons, and between that time and when it really blew up. And there was imams, uh, two sort of imams, one who was recanted. I'd like to ask yeah. you about that. Yeah. Uh, gone to the Middle East and actually created this crisis. And I think our listeners who are very very interested and keen on free speech debates would like take us back to that time. We kind of forget about this. Like, what was that moment? What were you doing? And why did it animate you so much that your country, which was presumed to be a liberal bastion on these issues, decided to collapse upon itself and have some very, very strange debates? Yeah, so um, like you said, Korblüten uh, had a problem with with finding uh, a cartoonist, and so Julian Pasten, uh, I think they were sitting in an editorial meeting, and and they were sort of saying, okay, can we get other cartoonists to actually depict 
uh, the, the, the Prophet uh, Muhammad. And so they sent out invitations uh, and a number responded that they would do so. Um, some 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 declined, and some actually uh, made cartoons that were very critical of Yulan's past. In, in and and just I want to quickly interject here something because in America we're obviously very obsessed with identity politics. Uh, Jacob's father is a Muslim uh, and former communist. In Koblutningen, who I have had drinks with, and when I met him and he came uh, to have drinks with me um, in uh, in his neighborhood, immigrant neighborhood, he uh, came dressed like Che Guevara. He's a very, <laughs> very left-wing guy. He had a Palestinian scarf on and a red star on his hat and the rest yeah. of it. So this kind of collapses all the political boundaries that would, would, would normally see in the U.S. Yeah. And and uh, so so the these cartoons were published and, and initially you know there were some protests by from from Danish Muslims but what really set things off was this delegation of of Danish based imams who went around the Middle East had meetings with the governments in Egypt and uh, I think uh, Hamas maybe also uh, and really started whipping up uh, an atmosphere against Denmark and then uh, you know before you knew it you had. Uh, mobs out there uh, torching Danish embassies, uh, torching Danish flags. Uh, uh, lots of people were killed uh, around uh, the world. Two hundred and uh, some. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have the, yeah. the exact figure. I, was I think it was close yeah. to three hundred. Yeah. And, and and of course uh, a huge uh, diplomatic mess. Uh, and 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 interestingly, um, so if you looked at at statements, the, the initial statement coming out of the the, the White House was not very. It sort of said almost that this was religious hate speech, and then mm. the 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 tone changed a little bit. Uh, the European Union was also sort of very, uh, you know, uh, it was it was not a, a, a ringing endorsement of, yeah. of, of free speech. Uh, so 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 Yulan's person was very much uh, uh, standing uh, alone. And 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 again, uh, this was uh, to me. This was really uh, amazing that you could have a, a, a secular liberal uh, country where it, you know we had had a guy in the '90s who went on national TV and burned the Bible, mm. you know. And and uh, there were a few people who were offended and reported him to police, and police said, "Ah, forget about it. You know, nothing's going to happen. You know, if you can burn the Bible on national TV, uh, you know." Surely you can have, yeah. You, surely you can have a, a private-owned newspaper publishing uh, cartoons. But but to be clear here, and this is an important thing that I think that probably no one would knew at the time, and no one outside of Denmark knew, is that Denmark had blasphemy laws. Yeah, um, uh, I think yeah. When I retire one day, one of the what I can be happy about saying is that that uh, my organization actually played a very crucial role in, in, in defeating the blasphemy uh, law. It, uh, I mean, a case was, uh, uh, there was a Muslim organization that that reported Yulan's person uh, to the police and the prosecutor decided not to to uh, to, to press charges uh, against it. But we had we had a blasphemy law and, and it was actually revived. Um, so even though we've had a guy, and this says a lot about how much fear since the, the cartoon crisis has affected Denmark. So we've had a guy in the 90s, he burns the Bible, on national TV. <clears throat> then we have a guy in 2015, you know, somewhere in the north of Denmark who burns the Quran, puts it up on YouTube, 50 people and their dogs uh, watch it. Uh, and the guy uh, and the guy uh, ends up being charged for uh, for 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 blasphemy. And that's when the whole ball, ball started rolling. People, th this was too obvious that you were basically, it was basically the jihadist veto, uh, meaning that, you know, um, 
Islamists get to determine the red lines mm -hmm. for, for, for threats for, of violence carry the day. Yeah, sure. for, for a long time, there was this uh, unstated premise among many Danish newspapers that they would not republish uh, the cartoons. Um, and that, that happened, um, yeah, I recall, on the anniversary, right? That there yeah. was some sort of concordat amongst all these people. They said that, you know. Yeah. Politica and Jelens Post them, yeah. the other ones. Uh, and I think it was, didn't one publish them, Information, like the left-wing one, actually? Because it, it's the amazing thing about this is it collapses, and I've said this before, all the typical political boundaries. I mean, Karl Blutening and the guy who kind of kicked all this off, like I said, leftist, you know, Fleming Rose, indeterminate politics as far as I can say. I think he's tell. mostly an eyewear model. <laughs> he was very Scandinavian eyewear. And he was like a Russia specialist. I believe translated Gorbachev's book into Danish. And it just, it didn't, everything outside was viewed through this prism of, you know, in this country, the psychopathic Pamela Gellers, and, you know, you have those in yeah. Denmark, Lashheda Gordon, these yeah. people. But but it, it was not a traditionally political left-right argument, was it? No. Uh, no. And, and it, you know, it, and what's interesting is, you know, we had artists in, you know, in the 60s and 70s who, you know, made art that offended Christians. And at the time, it was very much the left that sort of said, you know, free speech. You know, you know th these are the, you know, the guys that would you know, defend the piss Christ here sure. in, in the U.S. might be the same who said, well, yeah, you, can, you know, you can make fun of Christianity, but don't go after the brown uh, Muslims because they're a minority. And, and, and what got lost in all this is, you know, the countries that put pressure on Denmark <laughs> and for Julian's person to apologize were Muslim majority countries where, you know, you could go to jail if you offended the majority religion. So, so it was, you know, it was just sucked up into... Um, contemporary identity politics with very little understanding of the you know principles that that were at stake. You know, for a long time, freedom of speech had not really been top of the agenda in Denmark because you know no one felt threatened. You could basically say anything. And then once we were put to the test, you know, a, a very important segment of those who were supposed to be manning the barricades. Uh, you know, just uh, down tools and 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 sort of uh, said, oh, well, uh, those who want to kill you might, might have a point. They they might be a bit too extreme, but uh, you should really. Uh, Why do you think that happened? Um, I think it it, it becomes. Uh, Is it an identity politics thing, though? I mean, obviously, you're saying that if somebody torches a, a you know a holy book from you know you know the Bible, whatever it might be on television, nobody cares nobody bats an eye but there's obviously kind of a double standard here right isn't there there's a huge a double standard i think one thing has to do with you know a perception that muslims are a vulnerable minority mm -hmm. uh, a visible uh, minority and therefore uh, different rules should uh, apply to them. You, sh you shouldn't gratuitously offend their feelings because you're using your power to punch down. I, I hate that expression, punching down. Uh, mm -hmm. But but that that's basically. I mean, you, you saw the same arguments with Charlie Hebdo, uh, the French magazine, uh, where uh, a number of journalists were, were were butchered by by jihadists. 
uh, and and by the way, which had been one of the few publications that had supported uh, Yulan's person, who had re- who had who had published cartoons of of the of the Prophet Muhammad, and and which and very much firebombed as yeah, a result. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in 2011, they were firebombed. I, I I don't I think it was Newsweek or Time that wrote something like uh, like basically saying you know why they they were asking for it. It was Time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was also the Secretary of State John Kerry at some point made a, yeah, a comment. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 it's 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 also this is one of the interesting things from doing the 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 history of free speech podcast where I actually did an episode on called the Caliphate where I go back in in time. Um, Heard that one. And 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 you know these were rules developed in medieval Islam where people apostates and, and blasphemers could be killed for saying uh, the wrong things. This was not about, this was not about protecting uh, vulnerable uh, people. It was as it was in medieval Christianity, you know, a uh, religious state executing people for transgressing the red lines. And these are basically religious norms that people that happen to be a minority uh, try to enforce uh, in Western Europe. And, I, you know, I don't think it should matter what, you know, the color of your skin, your religion. If you try to enforce religious rules through violence, you know, people have to stand together and, and say, we're not going to accept that. This is completely uh, beyond the pale. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't matter how much we disagree with uh, with whatever might provoke you. Uh, you know, you got to show solidarity. Uh, but they didn't. No, a lot of people it didn't. It, it was. It, I would, I'd say. I, I mean, look, a surprising number didn't, right? Yeah, it, it, uh, and most most people didn't go out and say, you know, Yulan's person should be uh, <laughs> deserved. I mean, there were some who made uh, noises uh, like that, and and a lot of people didn't say either that they should be convicted or you know uh, prosecuted. Some did, but it was mostly these sort of weasel words of 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 saying you know oh they're extremists on both sides and you know they're being provocative yeah they're being uh, provocative they're punching down mm-hmm. uh, and so on and is is it is it fair to say that in the in the history historical research that you're doing right now um that the vast majority of blasphemy laws are written by the power structure against the comparatively powerless uh, minority populations is that a, yeah, is that a yeah, fair yeah, characterization I, I, yeah, yeah, very, of the history of blasphemy laws? Very much so. Uh, very much so. I, you know, the the last episode I, I did was on heresy and inquisition, and and where you had uh, the Catholic Church um, being very concerned uh, about heterodox beliefs, and suddenly, and when they, you know, so they invest, they start a crusade. They, they, they it doesn't help, and then they set you know uh, inquisitors out into Europe. Uh, that question people and ultimately uh, it was a minority who were burned but that was ultimately you know what what could happen if you were if you were a, a heretic so so very much uh, blasphemy laws have traditionally been an instrument to consolidate uh, power uh, both par- you know those who are you know both of secular rulers but also of of, uh, of of religious rulers so so it's it's a completely ahistorical idea that that blasphemy laws should protect uh, minorities and and you know you can go the, the so there was a in Sudan in the in the 80s there was a, a, a fantastic guy who was a Sufi mystic uh, who and he argued that you know Sharia law should be interpreted in a tolerant uh, uh, way you know you should allow freedom of religion heterodoxy and so on 
and he was executed in, in Sudan for apostasy and uh, you know so, so that, in a Muslim majority country and that to me shows very clearly that that people who who see um, who, who see this as you know blasphemy laws or blasphemy norms as protecting minorities uh, have have got it really really wrong at a fundamental level the uh, one thing I want to add to this before we get to sort of more kind of contemporaneous issue which is a contemporary no this issue. is totally contemporary yeah no i mean yeah. and as far as like the news of the day stuff uh -huh. that we do sometimes is that there is there are a few um heroes and a lot of villains in this story and it distresses me to no end that this i thought was going to be this kind of linchpin argument of the future in the next kind of 10 15 years it seems to me that from 2006 and even after the slaughter of charlie hebdo um, that this argument has kind of taken a backseat. It got worse. It got, it got worse it, after that. It got is, worse after that. So people, bizarre. I mean, the, the you know, I wrote a column. That, one of the columns that I'm happiest with that I wrote today, Beast, was about was was about the Charlie Hebdo stuff and about mm. um, Penn and and what they were doing vis-a-vis -vis Charlie Hebdo. But there are, I mean, it's it's distressing. And two questions. One one kind of comment and two questions is that the the, the comment is that one of the heroes of this, and I like the fact that. You know, on, on this podcast, we get communications from people who say, you know, here's some things that I was unaware of. And it's not just the kind of echo chamber of our own politics is that I do recommend and I wrote about him a long time ago. And I'd love to hear Jacob talk about him is a guy named Ahmed Akari. Yeah. So Ahmed Akari was one of the two imams and I should do some kind of air quotes here. But imams was no real training who was born in Lebanon and, and, and ended up in, in Denmark, who was one of the two. The other one was a guy named Abu Laban, I believe, yeah. who is now dead, right? yeah, yeah. you know, inshallah. Um, he's dead. And uh, Ahmed Akari is still alive. And Ahmed had this volta face. He turned around on this issue and in a very dramatic way and to great, uh, at great personal risk. I mean, you talk, it reminded me when you talked with the guy in, in, in um, Sudan who was, who was killed for apostasy. I talked to Akari a number of years ago when this was all happening in the middle of his transformation. And I asked him one time um, in one of our phone calls, he was living in Greenland at the time. It's a very safe place for somebody who is, you know, has videos being produced from, you know, ISIS controlled Syria with Danish speaking, sort of clumsily Danish speaking jihadists turning around on their knee uh, after a, a talking to camera about the apostasy. Uh, of this imam who created the cartoon crisis, turning on a knee and firing AK-47s into a photograph of him, mm. including uh, others like Morton Storm and some other people that they didn't <clears throat> like. And he was in a very precarious situation. And, and on the apostasy point, I, I talked to him one time and I asked him about his religious beliefs. I don't know where these are now. And I, and I know that he's written a book with a mutual friend of ours, um, Lars. And I asked him, I said, what do you, what do you think about the religion that obsessed you so much and made you travel around the world and made you kind of provoke and instigate this, these kind of um, riots and burnings and massacres, ultimately. Um, and he said he didn't know. And I, I pushed him on it. And there was a point when he told me, and I'm, I think I'm remembering this correctly, and he said, you know, it's one thing to have these guys turn on their knee in Syria and shoot fucking automatic weapons into a photograph of me. But it's a rather different thing for me to come out and be an apostate. And say, I don't believe in this anymore. Hmm. And he was hedging on that in a lot of ways because of the fear, despite the fact that he had been to the house 
of the guy who wrote, who drew the most famous uh, cartoon with the Muhammad with the bomb and the turban. I think, by the way, one still, of these, still the best one. I think. But by the way, I, I think also kind of widely, you know, misinterpreted or instantly interpreted in the most most you know offensive yeah, possible yeah. way. Um, you know, that was just the instinct that people had and had hugged him and had a picture of him with this guy. But he said, "There's something different. It's a category difference." If I were to tell you that I have left Islam and I'm a an, an apostate, and I said, you know, it's a funny thing. You, they're out to kill you. They want to kill you. They say they want your scalp, but you won't go that far because what? Then they'll really kill you. And he basically uh, said, yeah, 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 yeah. Salman did the same thing. Yeah, as you no, well, know. I mean, well, Salman, Salman said it was the in, uh, it was the biggest regret of his life was that he um, uh, uh, reconverted back to Islam to try to make them go away. Hmm. Um, and and he regretted it and regrets it to this day hmm. in a really, really serious way. And it's not somebody just trying to cover his tracks. He, he, he realized that there was somebody in a full no, panic. But and, I think, and, it, and I think it shows... It's understandable. Too. It shows what kind of horrific pressure that these individuals yeah. were are... are are. I mean, it's a present tense yeah. thing. I was at the, the Cato Free, uh, Milton Friedman Enterprise and sat at Fleming Rose's table... Uh, last week, and, and again, it's the eyewear model. He looks completely <laughs> unflappable and whatever. But just, and you know, Salman Rushdie pretty well. And and you know, I, I guess the daily pressure isn't the same as it was in Not 1989, anymore, no. uh, for crying out loud. But uh, that kind of pressure makes a person. It's hard. No yeah. one wants to go through that. And yeah. and you're capable, regardless of how you talk yourself into it, you know, it's not like it be, it's a genuinely felt decision at sure. the moment. And only in retrospect, you look back and say, it, look, it, it is one thing that's underlined beyond the debates about free speech and beyond, you know, where we are today. Is it underlined this point that I think Clive James made a number of years ago when he was writing, I believe, in The New Yorker about Daniel Goldhagen's book? Uh, Hitler is Willing Executioners, which was a big controversial book in the 90s. It said, you know, the problem with the Holocaust was not anti-Semitism, it was the Germans. It was, it was, it was kind of their preternaturally anti-Semitic. And what James pointed out, and I think that this was, was very much on display in the cartoon crisis, is that heroes are really in short supply. We tend to forget this because they're in the media, they're in films, and you're supposed to be heroic if there's something happening in front of you in New York City at the subway station. Hmm. But it, they don't, they, they're really in short supply. And it's to, to come out- It's a minority position. It's a very, very small minority position. And, and one has to really respect guys like Ahmed Akari and actually condemn them for what they did at the beginning. It's like, it took a lot for Ahmed to come out and say, yeah. I was wrong. And actually to, to, to make that huge turn. And you have, I assume, interacted, Jacob, with Ahmed. I mean, he's the man who started this. Whole thing. Uh, I, yeah, I met it's It's a few years ago uh, since I met him. But it, actually, what was really interesting is that um, so three or four days ago, there was a uh, a debate on, on Danish TV where Ahmed and Fleming sat down and talked um, for the first time. Uh, they, wow. had, they, they, they hadn't met and where Ahmed sort of apologized and, and Fleming you know Fleming he's he's yeah. the nicest guy in the world he holds grudges <laughs> yeah. against uh, against no one so that was actually a touching uh, well, Fleming was moment. very reluctant to meet him if initially, correct? Um, yeah, he may have been reluctant at, at at one point. I mean, he because he still lives with with security guards. Um, so it, uh, and you know, I'm no hero at all. Uh, but I I did sort of uh, a few years ago. I did an English short documentary where I showed the cartoons, and I just I I remember this. I, I had so I talked to Danish, you know, security uh, intelligence. And and I was you know I was I was scared, mm. <laughs> so I, I remember I was sleeping in my house and there were 
some young people outside my house sort of making a lot of noises. And, I, and you know, I was, you know, oh, are these uh, Islamists coming for me? Uh, are they going to kick in my uh, door? Um, uh, so and so imagine what, what these guys who are like on Al-Qaeda, ISIS, hit lists uh, are on. I mean, I've never had anything. Uh, I've never suffered any problems uh, uh, at all. Um, so yeah, so it 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 comes at a at a huge uh, at a huge price, and you know there there are now I think thirteen uh, Muslim majority countries where you have formally death penalty for blasphemy or uh, apostasy. Wow. Um, and and you know the interesting thing is if you go back in time to the tenth century, you actually had some really interesting free thinkers in in medieval Islam who. Who basically rejected the authority of the uh, of the Quran? You had uh, a time where, where, where in in in, ba- in the Abbasid Caliphate, you you translated almost all Greek um, science uh, and philosophy, including Aristotle, and you had some you know some of the most you know, powerful intellectuals, uh, philosophers. Uh, at the time, and and so, and but some of that <laughs> clearly has 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 been lost, uh, and and some of the things that was written, I think, in the ninth and the tenth century, would would probably send you to jail today in mm-hmm. in, in 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 Saudi Arabia or places like you know, that. It's, it's a real shame. And the waning of those of those traditions of those beliefs. That's all stuff that you have cataloged um, in your in your podcast. Uh, some of it, yeah. Uh, I've I've, I've where tried we, to. Where do we find the podcast, by the way? Tell so, people to. So you go. You go to freespeechhistory.com. Okay. Yeah. And it's and it's how many episodes? So right now we're on ten, and I have no idea what we're going to end up with. I mean, you could do this for six hundred. I imagine. Uh, yeah. a, there's a lot of work that goes into, <laughs> into producing these things. I mean, it's yeah. it's the 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 depth of the research that you have to do to pull these things together is extraordinarily impressive. Um, and I've, I've really appreciated um, the, the effort that you've expended thus far. So I know like no one else is listening but me. But <laughs> <Exactly>. Thank you. All the many, many fifth columnists out there, go and pick up your phone and subscribe to it right yes. now. Because I've listened to it. It's very, very good. Yes, you're mo- and no one is uh, smarter on this issue uh, than, than Jacob. So. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to to maybe bring in some some other things, because one of the things that I'm struck by as as I'm I'm listening somewhat passively to the conversation that's happening here um, is More the yeah exactly <laughs> I'm not falling asleep it's super interesting I'm just paying attention um, but it's the degree to which the across the West like both in Europe and the United States it, it, there are very similar things playing out this this surge of, sort of nationalist populism these strange hypocritical. Um, speech controversies that are exploding. And um, uh, for you to be here at this particular time during mm-hmm. the, the age of Trump in the, uh, the second year of our, of our great leader, um, <laughs> who, who, um, and, and during a week now we're having this conversation where, you know, there was the, uh, the NFL situation where they've instituted some new rules uh, related yep. to the Pledge of Allegiance because of the two year long controversy that the NFL has been enduring. Um, we've got uh, a, a situation where there was a court ruling fairly recently, um, actually this week, uh, about President Trump use, President Trump's use of Twitter and his blocking of people, which apparently it is unconstitutional mm-hmm. for the president of the United States to block people on Twitter. Um, I'm not certain that the president has actually done anything differently. It, those people may still be blocked, um, perhaps 
he's unblocked them. I'm not sure. Um, but it's really interesting to me that these things are unfolding in very similar ways. And it, it, it goes even beyond that. I mean, the other conversation that we were having was also about sort of the data privacy concerns and the general concerns about extremists, both sort of the, the radical religious extremists, but also right-wing extremists who are online and, of course, Russian meddling, and the degree to which some of the new regulations that are coming online to try to keep us safe from these things mm -hmm. actually end up crossing boundaries where uh, a, a right to be forgotten, for example, ends up intersecting with potential censorship. Like a law that allows me, Camille Foster, to decide that Google ought to remove content about me from their service mm -hmm. does, in fact, potentially become a censorship issue. So I'd, I'd love to, to broaden the conversation out to some of these related domestic issues. Um, well, also, let's point out, just because I, I think that's a, it's a great jumping off point and point out that it's, it's good to have uh, Jacob here because the differences between how we've used free speech in the United States and, and, and in Europe, where we kind of conflated these things for so long of this idea of hate crimes, which we, we do indeed have in the United States, and hate speech, which mm -hmm. I'm increasingly hearing thrown around just lazily in America. This sure. is hate speech. And in Europe, that's an actual category. And most places in Europe, one can be prosecuted one can be hauled in front of a court for a errant tweet or an offensive tweet. Or we don't have that so much here. My worry, and I'd love to hear Jacob on this, is that this, as we enter this this um, era of sort of hyper identity politics, in these ideas which I hear from young people constantly and here amongst colleagues of its hate speech which we don't have as an actual actual legal category, that we are lurching slightly more towards the European model on this. And what is that European model? Because I don't know if people really understand this, mm -hmm. is that it, it shocks and appalls people when you have this guy in Scotland who taught his pug dog how to do a Hitler salute. Um, and, and if anyone actually is one, doesn't know about this, go to YouTube and don't look at the video as such as this is a silly video, but look at Jonathan Pye, who's a left-wing comedian in the UK who has done a, uh, he, he does a, a, a correspondent character as Jonathan Pye. And he does one in front of a, a Scottish court in which he just gets the news that the man has been convicted, he indeed was, and then um, talks to his producer after and does a rant to end all rants. Ricky Gervais tweeted it. It's very, very, very funny. But Jacob, this is a different kind of world yeah. that you live in in Europe. The enlightened Europe that we wish that we were more like in the United States has kind of backwards laws on such things, don't you? Yeah, it depends on your perspective. I meet a lot of people in the United States who wish that uh, the First Amendment was not as strong in its uh, speech protections uh, as, as it is. And, and, uh, and, and let's also remember that the the level of protection that you enjoy here in the U.S. under the First Amendment was not always there. I mean, it's been developed by courts, and it's fairly recent that that you have a strong protection. I mean, you used to be mm -hmm. able to, to be thrown in jail for quite a long time for sort of peaceful anti-war protests in 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 this country. Sure. Um, but I, I would say, sort of at a general level, I, I view free speech very much as win-win. So you and I can have fundamental disagreements that previous in previous centuries would be an existential conflict where you and I said, we're going to go to war and, you know, whoever comes out on top uh, wins. Uh, but, we, you know, in, with free speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, we get to, you know, we get to settle our differences peacefully. You can live according to your views. I can live according to mine and we can all 
uh, basically get along. I think there's been a shift in, in, in values in the West towards seeing free speech uh, as a zero-sum game, mm -hmm. meaning free speech is, you know, it's about winning. Well, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's entirely conditional. Yeah, I mean, I and so free speech means my mm -hmm. views uh, and they, they have to, you know, they have to be protected absolutely. Right. But those that threaten my, my worldview should not enjoy the same protection, maybe no protection at all. And I think it comes from the left and it comes from the right uh, as well. So I think the, the NFL, because, you, because it's not a, a, a legal issue so much here, it becomes very much a cultural issue in the U.S. Sure. And, and, and I think the NFL uh, issue is, is the mirror image of you know you know conservatives crying about social justice warriors at, uh -huh. at universities and so and the on James Damore uh, firing yeah Google. exactly and 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 the NFL thing is precisely the same the national anthem you know uh -huh. national symbols that's something conservatives care deeply about you cannot profane, profane that and and so you know mentally you're you're just able to convince yourself that this has nothing to do with free speech because this is something special, right? But 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 and, and but and that's the same. So if you're on the left, you care about you. You have different sincere uh, beliefs that you uh, so that makes you able to sort of uh, justify why this restriction on on free speech really is not a, a real restriction, or at least is 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 justified. But then in Europe, um, uh, you could say this. Uh, has has become a legal problem in the UK. We mentioned this case, but in in 2017, his name is uh, Twitter name was Count Dankula. Exactly. Yeah, there he's, you go. He's a he's a, he's a hero of freedom, Count Dankula. But, but in the UK, there was <laughs> at least 3,300 cases of people being detained and questioned for quote unquote grossly offensive uh, um, posts on social media. Most of them, I mean, a lot of them will not be prosecuted. I don't know what the percentage uh, is, but but that's something like my math skills are really off. But it's something like nine people a day being. Can you imagine if you if you took that into the to like if you the UK population and then mm -hmm. yeah. modeled on on the US? You know yeah. the, the the number of people that would be prosecuted here for for tweets and Facebook updates yeah, sure. it would be you know well, it's, it would be it would be in about ninety percent of this room. <laughs> I think yeah. uh, in the in the you know in the United States, I think people are dispositionally <laughs> dispositionally opposed to to the kind of regulation of speech that would at least I think we like to assume that we are yeah, dispositionally I don't, I don't opposed think to we that. are but, I, I, but that, the but the but the ability to sort of slide towards that with the appropriate provocation like is totally there and yeah. especially when I see um some of the controversies that have spun up as a consequence of the Russian interference in the election yeah. um and the various regulations that have been proposed and suggested related to that that restrict our ability to anonymously purchase ads and perhaps even I mean some of the earliest incarnations or proposals around potential legislation there were talking about restricting some of the things that the Russians were doing where they were anonymously creating groups on Facebook and essentially just creating posts which are free on Facebook, which this also becomes something that we need to begin to regulate. And to the extent that you run afoul of this, you can imagine situations where people who are freely accessing platforms who perhaps are unwilling to divulge their identities when they're doing this may be running afoul of the law.
Um, but let's, in get some to, let's get to this argument that I know that every listener is thinking right now, and it kind of butts up against a piece that I had in the show last night or two nights ago ah, yeah, about, yeah. about comedy um, and about comedy on college campuses is that, you know, it's the instinct of conservatives. And, I, you know, this, the, Jacob makes a, a very smart and, and perfectly argued point that this infects both sides of the debate. There's mm-hmm. no right or left kind of monopoly on this kind of stupid thinking. But of course, we understand what the argument's going to be. And now, I mean, I understand it when, I, when it happens to people on the right, increasingly hearing it from people on the left, as I did in the piece that I, that I had in the show the other night. And you will hear it from the college bookers who say this, we are a private people. university. We, are, we, we did not talk to people from the University of Massachusetts or University of Chicago or whatever. These things that get state funding, I mean, they all technically get state funding in, in one way or another. Sure. But they are private it's institutions. All of the subsidies for education. And it is yeah. a free market that we are imposing upon our students because this is what they want. And that was the argument that was made to me. Which and is if, similar to the NFL the argument. The NFL argument. Yeah. Hey, yeah. This yeah. Is the market. It's, it's not a First Amendment uh, It's not issue. a First Amendment issue. So yeah. therefore, and I'd love to hear Jacob, who's you know, up to his neck in free speech arguments for 10 years. What do you say to those people who say that, you know what, this isn't a free speech argument because it's not a First Amendment argument. Mm. Are those I, two I things? I mean, the government uh, is not. Exactly. The government is not right. regulating speech. It is a private corporation yeah. who can do whatever the hell this they is, want. This is yeah. Google firing an employee. For Google firing an employee. Conservatives get mad. And yeah. then liberals get mad in the other way. Mm-hmm. And there's a million examples of that, too. And that's the NFL one. Do they have a point, number one? And number two, even if everybody has a point, is there a chilling effect on free speech when private companies and private colleges actually do manage and and limit speech? I mean, from a strictly sort of legal purist point of view, uh, of of course they, they, they have a point. But I think free speech is so much more than the laws. Um, free speech is about culture. And, I, and in many ways, I think culture is more important than, than laws. Mm-hmm. And I think if you have um, universities and colleges where you build a culture where you have certain taboos that cannot be... Uh, broken, I think that seriously undermines the culture of free speech, of of academic freedom, of freedom of inquiry that, in my view at least, should be sort of the gold standard of of places where you educate uh, uh, people to to think critically about the world that they live in, to to think critically about themselves, Mm -hmm. uh, to to challenge themselves, their their ideas. Uh, I, I mean... Um, there's nothing more enriching from my point of view than, than being challenged uh, with, with, the, with new ideas that make you think long and hard about your, you know, the values and ideas that you have about, you know, just doing this podcast, I've, I've changed my thinking uh, on a lot of things because, you know, I had certain assumptions about free speech that turned out not to be true. Um, and, and I think that's extremely important for, for all uh, human beings and ex- especially for, for, for young people who are being, who are being educated. But I, I actually heard the, the same uh, argument with the cartoon crisis. Well, this has nothing to do with free speech. These are just you know, ordinary criminal acts because you have people trying to kill hmm. uh, because it's not the government. Uh, so, so we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't address this as a free speech uh, problem that people want to kill uh, cartoonists, uh, and, and and I think you know uh, that's a very yeah. narrow understanding of free speech. And we created yeah. a we created a taboo in response to it in the United States, which Michael and I were uh, very much in the thick of at various points. Um, 
uh, here, I was at the LA Times when the when the Danish cartoons thing happened, and the LA Times, like all newspapers in America, with with only one or two like alt weekly exceptions, would not print the cartoons yeah. in even talking about the news stories. Like, hey, there's this cartoons that are driving everyone mad, and people are going crazy, and hundreds of people are dying. Very controversial. Um, let's describe the the cartoon to you. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I was I was lobbying at the LA Times in the opinion section. Like, okay, um, we should as a reader service. Let them we should see. Print this. Yeah. Because one of the things that you'll see if you actually see the cartoon is like, really? You're going to kill someone over that? Yeah, exactly. What the hell is wrong with you? Um, that's one thing. But also. It was kind of annoying by the LA Times did this, and you and I both were in the thick of this in, at some at a couple of points. Uh, was the 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 bullshit argument that people got, people gave you after that, that it was, you know, that there was anything but the real reason, which was just that they were scared. They're, they're scared. And that, ter that terror works. And it was not, I mean, look, you but know, you, I have a very, uh, a thing that I, I unfortunately provoked. And you can go back into my Twitter feed, I don't know if you can find it, maybe somebody would find it. Uh, at the time when they wouldn't, I can't remember what they wouldn't put on um, the Reuters news wire, the photo wire, there was something they wouldn't Publish. Like, it might have been the uh, the the cover the cover of Charlie of Charlie Hebdo after, after the murder. Yes, and I made a comment on Twitter because I had access as a journalist had access to the to log into the to the Reuters or AP uh, photo wire. I very quickly found Andre Serrano's piss Christ, and I took a screenshot of that mm. and said, you know, things that are offensive on the photo wire isn't you know universally isn't a universally held belief. Right, uh, and they pulled it. Uh, because of me, I guess because of me, because it was it was a couple hours later. Wow. They pulled it, and you cannot what to ever, this day censor. Yeah, you cannot to this day. <laughs> I believe cannot get an image of Andre Serrano's piss Christ to illustrate that very controversial point from the 1980s. If you were going to go back to that, I believe it's on the AP Newswire that you can no longer get this photo because rather than admitting hypocrisy or going the the correct direction, they went the other direction and said, you know, what? we're going to give. Uh, it's kind of an own goal here. We're going to give. Uh, a victory to the fanatical Christian right 30 years later because of the jihadist visa. Similar thing happened at the New York Times right at the time of the Charlie, that, that moment, we're talking about the Charlie Hebdo thing. Um, they ran a feature story in the style court? section of the court. That's yes. right. Downtown Manhattan. Downtown yeah. Manhattan had yeah. a courthouse that had a statue of Prophet Muhammad. Uh, long may he do whatever he does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> have, have bombs and beards. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's the end of your life. <laughs> statue. Yeah, we've, we've been there before. Yeah. Um, statue on top of the courthouse. And it had been there for a half century. No one ever complained about it. Um, and at some point it was uh, uh, taken down. I, I I think it was taken down because it was old. Or I don't I don't I don't think that it was a protest related uh, thing that it was taken down. Um, uh, maybe it was, but it's not important for the story. It was sort of trucked off into some um, uh, warehouse in uh, in New Jersey or at the end of the uh, first Raiders of the we're Lost Army. Yeah, we're all, we're all the other Prophet go. Muhammad uh, photos yeah. and sketches go. So, and they, and ran, they ran this story <laughs> as like, oh, you know, it's interesting uh, here to talk about uh, iconography. And, and as for our part at the New York Times, even though this thing is a historical vile photo of a New York building in which a statue was on for a half century and no one once ever complained because it was like a gift from, you know, Qatar or some goddamn yeah. country, um, uh, so-called country. And uh, and <laughs> wow. And they wouldn't they wouldn't even show a, one of their own file photos based on they made the decision. So they, a statue on top of a courthouse in downtown Manhattan. That is yeah. that's not, yeah. up there it's not up there anymore. So they yeah. helped in, in the reaction to the Danish cartoon uh, Christ, the Intunfada, the reaction to this 
in the West, we created the taboo that previously didn't exist. Mm. We created a professional widespread kind of social taboo that we can no longer have images of the Prophet Muhammad, long may he mow his Look, and, and very importantly, that we uh, in the West, and, you know, whether this is Viacom and South Park not allowing Matt and Trey to put, you know, Muhammad in a bear costume even to, to, in yeah. response. The to The hint of Muhammad yeah, might and, be and, behind and, the bear and, costume. And, and, and the satire response is we decided collectively without any religious education to adhere to a very particular vision of how the Prophet Muhammad should be viewed mm. because extremists decided this. And, of course, as I think everyone in this room knows, there are varying ideas on the depiction of the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in some places, uh, you know, Iran, et cetera, in books and, 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 and frescoes and paintings and the rest of it, you will see the Prophet Muhammad. But we decided... In the Supreme Court of the United States, you, you will see the Prophet that Muhammad. That too, yeah. And we decided to take that very extreme um, interpretation of it and internalize it as our own in some sort of spasm of Western guilt that these were punching down, et cetera. In response to violence. In response to violence. But that's that's not the only way that that taboos emerge. I think the, the, when we did the- It isn't, but it's the way this one did. It it is, but interestingly, I mean, I think we're in a season where they're, they're, it feels as though, and I don't know that we can track the volume, but that there are a number of taboos that are being minted or at least newly observed right now. And one of the most- salient points um, for me personally uh, that came out of the the fire debate that I moderated um, a couple of weeks ago was the observation that first, it's very difficult to make any sort of empirical determination about whether or not there's a a speech crisis because the data can be read in a bunch of different ways, but that importantly, trying to make some determination between whether or not we're sort of panicking about all of these various things that are happening on campuses um, or there's something very real happening is challenging because there is always this organic process by which certain things be- just kind of go out of fashion and become unacceptable yeah. to say yeah. um, for for whatever reason. The circumstance may vary. In some cases, it's a violent extremist organization that doesn't want you to do particular things. In other cases, it's we're all um, very uh, sensitive to the needs of, say, the homosexual community or the LGBT. Q, X, Y, I don't know. I'm not trying to diss anybody. I just don't know. It really um, hits the ear funny yeah, when you exactly. say homosexual I'm community. Yeah, that's um, pretty good. Is that, is it? That's the most Jamaican yeah. you've ever sounded. Uh, yeah. yeah like, I'm not the least bit uncomfortable. No, that was like, at least you didn't say homosexualist. Um, I was like, he we are it. doing a fifth column with Buju Banton. Big up to Buju. I, I'm not going to not gonna do any Buju yeah. about, yeah. about um, homosexuals because yeah. the Buju yeah. is intolerant. He's very that intolerant. Sort of that's why I was comparing uh-huh. you to <laughs> Thank you. Um, but no, there's there's something about, uh, I think the point that you were making earlier, Jacob, about culture being perhaps the most essential thing, at least equivalent to, in, in my estimation, government censorship and government actually enacting laws yeah. by which you can go to jail for saying this fucking thing. The notion that you have a culture that is sufficiently tolerant, that has a standard of reciprocity that allows us to say things that might be potentially injurious to someone else or embarrassing or upsetting, um, and that we permit each other this privilege, um, that that versus a culture that is overly sensitive or that is hypersensitive, that is Maybe I and, I and I don't want to load this up too much. Perhaps I'll just say very sensitive yeah. and has a lot of points at which it is trying to safeguard people 
from harm and from upset, like the students who yeah. Can, and can I throw this to everyone here on that point and uh -huh. kind of be able to <laughs> promote the piece that I did in the show this week, um, which I put uh, a reason today. Yeah, I saw that, and it was actually sent around uh, from the PR people at Vice. They were very happy with it, and it was it was very nice, very nice of you to do so. It, uh, the piece that did I they did, say anything about me? I posted it. To uh, no, they actually uh, specifically did. They said something. <laughs> to you. They, they was what well, I'll tell you after the show. But yeah. it was but really bad. That's oh my god, was it so bad? upsetting? I couldn't believe that it was in Patois. Too. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Body boy, I'm like no. <laughs> why would you say that? That's unacceptable. Offensive. Yeah, want us so, to come further. Yeah. <laughs> so what, the piece, um, and I hope that uh, listeners will go and uh, check it out. It's on. You can find it on my Twitter feed. Um, we met with a bunch of college bookers uh, that booked at um, various colleges in Boston. We went there to do it. Um, all very nice people. They have very, very um, particular views. They all kind of agreed with one another. Um, and this is the point that I want to throw to everyone. And after that, we went to, to the Comedy Cellar, where you did the debate, the fire debate, mm -hmm. uh, with the great, great, great Judy Gold, who is, um, um, and I'll say this, with, I'll actually say one. Judy Gold is in your piece, not in the She's in my piece, debate. yeah, she was right. in the fire debate, but, but she's, a, she's a comic. And Judy, um, uh, it was the most interesting thing, and you can see the joke in the piece. It's a very controversial joke. Pissed off, all right. You're going to get really pissed off and hate me. All right. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is so gross. <laughs> That even Larry Nasser was like, I don't care if your back hurts. Okay, yes, yes. So that's a, so. <laughs> so funny. by the way, so that joke hit uh, the audience uh, with a gasp because it's it's a funny thing because the with the exception of Amy Schumer, with Amy Schumer who <laughs> laughed very hard. Yeah. By the way, that is totally synced. The lawyers made sure of it. That was Amy's reaction. We were not pulling anything. Amy was in the audience. She did a set before before Judy, and she was sitting behind me. And that was a very honest response. Amy, who has disavowed a lot of the comedy that she's done in the past uh, for being offensive, thought that was a very, very funny joke. That's Sarah Silverman this week distancing herself from her uh, somewhat funny uh, black blackface. Exactly. She, Sarah Silverman's been doing a lot of disavowing of her, of her old material, too. And... Um, that joke actually was was pretty interesting because the crowd is a New York City crowd, and the 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 joke, as you hear, is a joke about Sarah Huckabee Sanders and an anti-Trump joke. Everyone gets very excited. They're like, yes, 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 yes. And then it's also a rape and fat shaming joke <laughs> at the same time. And so everyone's clap. Uh, oh my God, what the fuck do we do here? And and uh, Judy, who's, who's great and very funny, was like, yeah, you don't know what to do. You do not know what to do with this joke because you almost affirmed your political beliefs and then you realized that you shouldn't laugh at a fat shaming joke and a rape joke, which are totally off limits. And the question I'll put out to you guys is that what the college bookers said is that Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, these guys say, uh, John Cleese said, I will not play college campuses anymore. They're too mm -hmm. sensitive. The argument they make, and I want to throw this to you guys, is that it, times have changed, old man. We don't think this shit is funny anymore. Mm -hmm. The times have moved on and you are in the past and you're making these very offensive jokes and the culture has shifted. That's the first argument. The second argument, and I'm particularly interested in hearing Jacob talk about this, if this has happened in the scope of free speech history, is that words are, are dangerous. And they can words are violence. They're violence. They can injure people. And what they do as college bookers, they want to protect their students from jokes that can harm them and words can harm them. And I asked somebody in the piece, do you believe a joke can be harmed? And then she says, yes, it can. What do you guys think about this? Uh, I'll answer the first part because I want to hear what Jacob has to say about the second part, especially the historical thing. But um, 
uh, times have changed, old man, and that's why the most popular comedians in the country are uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, why South Park is still popular more among college kids than any probably other, um, uh, you know, uh, comedy uh, out there. So, no, I mean, if you measure what the market likes in funny stuff, there's going to be offense giving all over it. Hmm. Um, so uh, I, I, I think that they are in their way. They are doing their jobs, the college bookers, because that's the you know, they're reacting to their own thing. They're what they said uh, I found was monstrous and creepy. And many, especially the woman who is who is you were saying, hey, isn't the point of comedy to put you into uncomfortable places yeah. and have you work through it? And she's like, no, 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 no. Like interrupt. You were like interrupted on, no. on the sixth word of that sentence. And by the way, I really hope that we gave them. And I think that they were happy with that piece. No, you, it was uh, fair. I think we not tried a, to give them their their voice. It's and, not a sandbag, but it reminded me yeah. very much of you interviewing yeah. the activists at Evergreen, like yeah. to actually see yeah. what this stuff looks like is more is more horrifying than what the critics say about it on some level but with that said i am interested in like the uh the words as violence thing is that new how long am i allowed to go back how boring can i get yeah <laughs> no but it's 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 really uh it's a pervasive idea i would say so um take the the trial of socrates um so so there are different sort of uh, that uh, different accounts of why he was uh, of why he was uh, condemned to death, but one of them was that he didn't respect the religious uh, traditions uh, of of the Athenians, and and the idea being that you know if you upset the gods, they uh, they're going to punish you, and uh, and the Athenians had had a lot of bad shit happening to them. They've lost uh, some some wars, uh, and and uh, and and so he was condemned. And you see it very much in Christianity. The, the you know why did why did the Catholic Church go after heretics? It's not because they were evil. The inquisitors were evil, and they enjoyed uh, burning people. They didn't at all. They 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 actually really wanted to save people from from being condemned. And they 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 in their view. Her, her, heretical ideas would spread, infect, and ultimately you would risk the 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 the, the punishment of God. He God would inflict punishment upon you, and if you were convinced that that wrong belief would incur the punishment of God, then you can you can understand why it would be the less evil to ultimately burn someone because mm -hmm. you're saving. You're saving uh, everyone else. You're saving some society from being contaminated. So in that sense, it's a very old idea that words are actually have very serious consequences in if if they if they breach the fundamental values mm -hmm. that that uh, so so religion actually comes from the okay I'm I'm getting really geeky here but it comes from the Latin word uh, uh, ligere means which means binding together. So religion binds society together hmm. and so if you if you untie those uh, the, those those bonds everything is going to go to hell literally and 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 so so you can see why uh, it has it has become like that and so, maybe so, on the flip yeah. side there's a piece uh um by what's his face the guy who uh is not uh, john mcquarter and is not camille foster 
but he writes very interesting. And he has three names. You know what I'm talking about. Thomas Chatterton Williams. Maybe, yes. ex, yeah. maybe he yeah. actually tweeted at John McCoy. Anyways, T- TCW. There was a, a piece called The uh, the Great Awakening mm-hmm. um, that was uh, published by one of those guys. Maybe it was, it was John. McCoy. It was McWhorter. Okay. Yeah. Uh, recently. Uh-huh. But that puts that kind of identity politics uh, fervor in a religious context. Mm-hmm. Not, and not so, the first time he's done that. And so maybe that speaks. Yeah. That's what this yeah. is on some level. Is that and, you? And, and I think I think it 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 shows that why we should leave that uh, behind. But when it comes to, I, I really I think this is one of the crucial things about free speech that I that I think we we have to address. The idea, you know, is free speech a threat for, to minorities, or you know, or or is it a safeguard for minorities? Mm-hmm. And, I, and 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 my, you know, thinking on it. Uh, is very much that free speech is extremely important for for minorities. Take my own country, Denmark. So, mm-hmm. like I said, you, we, the center right used to be f- pro free speech with the cartoons, but but now, so there was this documentary showing some some imams instructing their congregations in you know really uh, hardcore Sharia law, and so we have politicians go out, and we have now a law, which means that if you're if you're uh, explicitly condoning certain illegal acts as part of religious training, you can go to jail for three years. So if you're an imam and you're standing in a in a mosque and you say uh, Islam allows polygamy and it's a great thing, you could potentially go to prison for, for, for three years. So so Muslims in Denmark, you know, if they had in general said, we really don't like the cartoons, but we understand that living in a secular democracy, mm-hmm. you have to put up with with with, with shit like that. Mm-hmm. Then I don't think these laws would have been turned. But but when you are a minority, you are very vulnerable. You, you basically say, okay, I, I, let's use the law against someone. But then when things things turn, you know, you are going to be the one that gets hit uh, uh, the hardest. Um, and 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 so my, it's a really really dangerous game for minorities to try and get laws to be used uh, uh, against speech that they, they don't like because it is basically, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of religion that allows minorities to to live uh, within uh, secular uh, democracies. Once you undermine that, you basically undermined your own uh, freedom and uh, and safety and security. And, and I see that happening. And yeah. in, in, and and no one stands up. I mean, Fleming and I, Fleming Rose, who published the cartoons, he's also been very principled. But, you know, all of those all of those that we stood that we stood together with during the cartoon crisis, all of them have basically not all of them, but a lot of them have sort of drifted uh, away. None of no, no one would stand up for a sort of fundamentalist uh, Islamist uh, on, on on principle, it, you know, it, it just couldn't be done. Uh, so, so we were we, we we were looking around. Where are all our allies? You know, <laughs> and it's a, I mean, it's a very very good point, one that's not often made or thought about. That, you know, it is the principles of free speech that attract people to Denmark who then reject free speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's there's gradations of who who you know rejects this stuff from within you know religious communities, particularly in places like Nobo in Denmark. But I mean, I was there after the terrorist attack on the free speech event, and I saw the funeral with my eyes, my own eyes, of uh, the the terrorist who was shot and killed by the Danish police uh, after he shot up a free speech event, and then killed people at a synagogue and then was found in the neighborhood of Nobo and in a very heavily immigrant neighborhood and was shot down there. And then um, an enormous number of people came out 
uh, for his funeral, a disturbing number of people. Yeah, five, five six hundred. Five, six hundred people yeah. that came out for, if you didn't know this guy, that came out for, for a person who tried to murder, um, you know, Lars Vilks and people that were, were supporting free speech, the woman from Femin, the Ukrainian feminist organization. And to see that and you want to shake these people and say the reason that you migrated from whatever country that you left to come here was because the free speech rights afforded to you by the secular democracy allowed you to have your religion here and have your mosque here, whether it's a basement mosque that, that has spittle fleck nonsense from some extremist imam or if it's a more mainstream version of that, of that religion. And it's amazing to watch people uh, support and reject uh, uh, those values and support, support somebody who actively murderously tried to, to, to suppress that stuff. It's an absolutely shocking thing to see. I, I think anyone who, who, who thinks about these things about free speech and minorities should, should, should look up the speech by Frederick Douglass called A Plea for Free Speech in Boston, which the background of it is, so there's been a, uh, an abolitionist debate in Boston, and it is uh, violently disrupted by, mm -hmm. by, uh, by white, white business uh, owners, I guess, because they are afraid of their commercial interest in the South if you have too much rabble-rousing by abolitionists. And, and Frederick Douglass is shocked. And then uh, a couple of days later, he, he gives a great, great speech where he basically says that you know free speech would 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 do away uh, with with uh, with slavery. It's the antithesis of, of slavery, and that free speech uh, should have nothing to do uh, with uh, with uh, with color, but just depends on the on the quality of of, of what's being said. That that to me has really been uh, my my guiding star when when com when when thinking about uh, when thinking about uh, yeah the relationship between free speech. Uh, and minorities. Another uh, is a woman called Ida B. Wells, uh, who who who, uh, who was documenting uh, lynchings in the South. Mm -hmm. uh, her newspaper was was uh, she was a black woman. Her newspaper was 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 burned down. She was uh, she suffered death threats. Um, had to go to Chicago to continue her work. Uh, that to me is another example of how absolutely critically important it is uh, uh, for minorities to have. Um, to to have free speech, that it, that it's a fundamental safeguard rather than a uh, the, the, than a threat to uh, mm -hmm. minorities. I see this more often that than not, and I'm going to get mad on this after this. But you know that that the abridgment of free speech is now um, through the prism of protecting minority rights and to remember people like Ida B. Wells and people mm -hmm. like Frederick Douglass and the I, that we've talked about a million times in this show, the fire in a crowded theater, which was an abridgment of the free speech of Jewish socialists protesting yes. the, for the First World War. And people tend to forget this. And we always have to remind those who seem to be, this is a moment, this is not something that's standard in, in American or world history. The moment we're in, it seems to be the abridgments of free speech are coming from one side of the political debate and to remind those people on that side of the political debate of how important that free speech arguments have been for liberating their side of the political debate. Yeah, well, that's the uh, that's the uh, the Jonathan Rauch point. He wrote the book that I like the best in the in the free speech. It's a great book, yeah. A work called The Kindly Inquisitors from 1993 mm -hmm. or four. And on the occasion of the 20th anniversary when I was editing Reason, uh, uh, asked him to, uh, to write an essay that I think it was tacked on to the new version of it. Um, sort of looking at uh, how the controversies had gone since then. And he talked in terms of uh, the best criticism of his book or of the idea behind the book is that 
uh, it's the criticism of it's the you know it's the rich white patriarchy or whatever. It's the power structure. Free speech is good for them, but it's bad for uh, disrep- uh, unrepresented minorities. And so he took the idea very seriously and went in there and deconstructed it so thoroughly and beautifully, but out of a sense of of, of intellectual exploration. And then the case that he took was a guy named Frank Kameny, who I think was fired from the U.S. government, maybe Defense Department. And I'm sure I'm getting some stuff wrong in the 50s and because uh, he was an openly gay man uh, trying to fight the basic discrimination of the government and of society. And at the time uh, that he was first started this fight, he had no hope of winning. Uh, and then society was arraigned against him, like, you know, 95% to 5%. He was just screwed. But it was only the access to free speech that allowed him to slowly, slowly build and create uh, a thing. Because he knew that once these ideas were actually confronted by people and they had to see the mirror image of what their bigotry uh, looked like on, a, on a, a human being that they could recognize, that uh, eventually those ideas would win. It was a faith um it's a great piece. The other thing I'll quickly leave us with, because I know we don't have much time about it, and it gets to your culture point. Barry Friedman wrote a book uh, five, six years ago whose uh, title escapes me, but the basic thesis is that the Supreme Court should be understood in the United States as following culture by about 10 years. Mm. So right now, uh, and David French in his really great New York Times uh, piece about the NFL anthem uh, uh, wars from uh, the other day, made this- Made this point in his in his lead paragraph, uh, which we've probably made here too, which is that we're in this weird paradoxical moment in the United States right now, where legally our free speech has never been better. The Supreme Court, on the Supreme Court level, free speech is great. There's some exceptions, but for the most part, it's really well protected. But uh, culturally, it just obviously is not. And if you believe the Barry Friedman thesis. Um, and that 10 years down the line, we could be in trouble. And if you look around us, there's a bunch of different laws that have passed and that are being uh, contemplated even this year. The sex trafficking law, which is probably the worst uh, free speech law that's been passed in the last 20 years. I'm not, you know, the, um, basically saying that retroactively we can decide, you know, 15 years later that people who are in your comments section were engaged in, in a transaction that we don't like and you are responsible for it. It's an amazingly chilling and horrible thing. Nobody cares. Um, Jeff Sessions's own Justice Department said, "Hey, this is probably unconstitutional," and only twenty-five people voted against it in the House. Um, there but is, we're not, we don't like sex trafficking, like ex- much like we don't rate. Like the racism, Seattle Times right? had an editorial about, you know, Trump is terrible. He's uh, attacking against the media. It's it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. And so, what we really need to do, and they're serious about this, and they even quoted Orwell. They said, mm-hmm. you know, this is it's like Orwell. And so, in order to stop this Orwellian moment, what we need to do is to restore net neutrality rules, mm-hmm. to reimpose the fairness doctrine, mm-hmm. um, and to start blocking these mergers. Uh, and it's like, do you even fucking what know what it? you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Let's give Big Brother a loaded gun and only then will we be free. It, it like makes no sense. So that's the cultural context that we're in that I think yeah. is going to create a legal context that's I, yeah. bad is very part, soon. Is part of what's happening here, and, and I'm, I'm not asking this rhetorically, I think this might be the case, but the sensibility that we've, we've won the argument on certain important issues to the extent that freedom of speech was an essential component of winning the argument for abolitionists who were, you know, like Lovejoy purchasing printing presses, having them destroyed and eventually like being murdered because you had the audacity to order another printing press so you could pr- print your abolitionist newspaper. Like we've won those arguments. At this point, we're, we pull up the bridge behind us so that we can firewall ourselves off from all of those noxious bad ideas that may 
come across the transom if we don't yeah. if we yeah. don't have government to protect but, us. Yeah, so, I mean, it's so we'll have pop, net yeah. neutrality yeah. to protect the internet and to keep it quote unquote free and open um, and, and various other prohibitions to protect us from awful people with repugnant ideas that might endanger our sensibilities about identity. It, I wonder though, while I think that that's, that's probably part of what's happening, it's probably also the case that for everyone at any point in history, you always sort of feel like you're at the, for the majority of people, yeah, of you course. feel like you're at the end of history. Of course. Like you've won the important battles. Like maybe there will be some new inventions later, but, but all of the big ideas, like we, we have them now. We understand the world and the, the important sort of philosophical discoveries, the, the, the progress that we need to make on important issues, the acceptable acceptable kinds of behavior, acceptable mm. manifestations of personal identity. We have all those things. History is and over we just for need to freeze right? things yeah. right now yeah. where yeah. they are. Yeah. So no minority person with your obscure, weird perspective that endangers our status quo that we like very much. But I, I You're thought, not allowed to do yeah, that. and I thought, I mean, that we would, I was really naive about this, thinking that we wouldn't have to have these debates in the way that we're having them because the vanguard of, you know, protecting free speech, even that is cracking. Mm -hmm. And you can see this in the New York Times article, and I had explored actually doing a piece on the show about this, but but people were not very interested in talking to me about it, was that, you know, the ACLU has, there's a there's a the chasm that's separating the young and the old generation of the ACLU who now say, well, yeah. we don't want to protect people like those in Charlottesville because somebody ran over somebody else and <clears throat> did that in a <clears throat> violent, racist way. And that was the motivation for it, for sure. But we don't want to be that those people that are there at Skokie uh, that says, let's protect the rights of these Nazis to march through a neighborhood, which is primarily mm -hmm. Jewish and, you know, inhabited at that point in the 1970s by a number of people who survived the Holocaust. Um, and the guy who actually did that, by the way, uh, who was who was the. Um, you know, man who was trying to sort of, you know, do that march, the, the head of the Nazi organization. Jewish. Uh, yeah, 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 he's half Jewish. <laughs> he, he's a numerologist, still alive, by the way, and was actually and ended up being brought up later on pedophilia charges. Shock. But, uh, you know, Very nice this, guy, though. The, Very nice you guy. know, we can boil this down to its most essential component that people don't like to talk about. And I think it's the one that is the most effective with young people who tend to have incredibly confused minds about the issue of free speech. And, you know, because they're so obsessed and, and, and come out of college and in this cauldron of identity politics and protect, protecting people and saying, well, we I'm opposed to violence and speech can be violent. So let's oppose this because we oppose violence. I oppose racism and, you know, hate speech. So therefore, let's abridge the speech of these bad people. And I know that this is a cliche, but it's worth repeating is that free speech and free speech protections are not there to protect your speech. And I assume the people that I'm talking to and the people that we're talking to generally and the people listening to this podcast are within the bounds of good taste usually. And they're not Richard Spencer's of mm -hmm. the world and they're not knuckle draggers and they're not fascists and they're not Antifa people that our speech is generically protected and people don't recoil and roll their eyes and try to kick us out of polite company. That's because they haven't read your text message. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, if they did, good God, you think I'd be on this show? So yeah, real, real be, quick, guys, yeah. I got to jump in with a couple of clarifications before we bust whoa, out. Whoa, uh -oh. VOG. Yeah, VOG's been laying back in the cut. But uh, now for, for Matt, uh, the Barry Friedman book was called The Will of the People, How Public Opinion Has Influenced the Supreme Court and Shaped the Meaning of the Constitution. See? 
Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. And Frank Kameny was an astronomer for the U.S. Army's Army Map di- uh, Service and was yeah. fired in 1957 for his homosexuality. Yeah. There you go. yeah. Thank you. And I think Frank was the name of the guy that was leading the Skokie March. Frank something or other. Can, He's gone by a number of different names. Frank can, the Tank is a very important yeah. Yeah. Can, can, can I just... <clears throat> my big fear with uh, with this country is if you didn't have the num- the level of protection that you have now with the First Amendment, mm-hmm. it's not so much like federal laws. It's more at the state and local level. I yeah. think, you know, so it, in, on true. the coasts, it would be, you know, Tea Party and 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 uh, alt-right and sort of would be directly, indirectly intimidated. And in NRA. The, uh, yeah, and in the, in, in the South, it would be Black Lives Matter. Sure. It would be, you know, those kind of... Uh, and then, you know, things would start to seriously fray in, in, in this country. You know, laws would be weaponized in, in your culture war. It would be... it would if, if you think things are ugly now, I think they would be really ugly. And you see that... Uh-huh. Uh, you see that in Europe. So... Uh, in Germany, you they've enacted a law which uh, obliges social media companies to remove uh, hate speech within 24 hours or risk a 50 million euro uh, fine. Mm-hmm. In, Seems uh, a bit steep. In, 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 <laughs> in face, and Facebook has 1,200 moderators. And especially if those uh, posts offend uh, <laughs> yeah. members of the Turkish government. F- Facebook has 1,200 people moderating content in a deletion center in Germany alone. But that law has been copied wow. by... It's a jobs creator. This, Come this, on. But this law has been copied by Russia. Broken windows. It has been copied by Russia. Mm-hmm. So uh, why do you say Germany and Russia are... No. So where's th- Poland th- in this? This is just like a cross, cross-fertilization of, of censorship uh, regimes. And, uh, you know, I, your your culture, your free speech culture is far from perfect. The The First Amendment has its flaws, but I think you would be very, vi- very wise to, to uh, sort of... Uh, uh, keep it uh, the way the way it is when it comes to uh, the viewpoints uh, and not go down a more European road. Well, I'll tell you one thing, tooting my own horn, part of the reason why I'm a hero is because <laughs> yeah. I, I am a part of the, the, the bold vanguard that believes that everyone should have the right to say the word nigger. And oh, the God. reason, and the reason I think so, is because I think it is imperative that there not be these corridors. You should have the right to, but could you stop these saying it's corridors? So much? No, I like it. The, the word has Jacob a nice ring it. to it. With um, a little Danish accent, it's, it's, it's going to sound real nice. The corridors, the corridors of of unsafe yeah, speech. We we have to traverse those things. It's essential for all of our individual freedom and liberty. Yeah. Um, and someone should tell Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. Um, and with that, that was a setup. I think um, we should. What, what's yeah, that? Think, it was a setup yeah, to bring her on stage. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, but you know, um, um, I gotta go drink because it's yeah, we we're recording this. This is actually a unique uh, thing that we're, we don't typically record on a Friday night. No, we don't. Uh, and this is encroaching upon my social hour, <laughs> in which I sexually harass people and then vomit in various bathrooms it's around. Not acceptable to make jokes about that. I, I'm not making jokes. Beat that I am, out of the I am, I am, dro- I'm dropping telling. truth bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like your Yemen, and I am Saudi Arabia, and these are truth bombs that are destroying your country right now. That's sorry really to say. Sad. Sorry, yeah. to say, it is sad. He's going to yeah. blockade this door too. So the whole thing is fucking sad, Camille. Yeah, you know. Damn I'm it. sorry to make jokes about it, but this is this some truth. Well, I'm giving you. Well, I'm, I'm welcome back. I'm glad that I could spend some time with all of you gentlemen. I'm going to go home and go to sleep. Um, oh Jacob, gosh. thank you for hanging out with us. It was a pleasure. Um, Thanks. Come back, man. Yeah, I think we're done. We're done. We're done here, Fisher. Bye. 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 <laughs>